What I want to do is I want to just kind of um, say that as we are in this place of the Gospel of Mark, Mark writes in a way where he gives us these little vignettes, these little snapshots um, that I think the way he writes is that he wants to sort of pause at each one of these little vignettes and just sort of observe, soak in, to really understand, meditate, to think about. The way that Mark writes, it kind of reminds me, like I, I've told you before, I, I grew up Catholic and I remember young age where we would do these things called like, I think it was called the sign of the cross, or not sign of the cross, stations of the cross, where they would have these little sections where you would go and physically look at a picture, Jesus in the garden, whatnot. And uh, in some ways, Mark kind of writes like that, where he writes um, these little vignettes, little snapshots, little scenarios that I think he wants us to really pause and reflect and consider. And that's what we want to do. We want to kind of uh, follow the same pattern that's sort of laid out for us in the text. So what we'll be taking a look at here this morning is we'll look at Jesus uh, as the king, because Mark is sure to uh, cause us to understand from the very beginning, verse 1, chapter 1, that this is the story about Jesus the Christ, and one of the things that have been with us on this journey, that every single time we see the word Christ, um, we, it's, it's really the English parallel to what we would describe as a king, so that Jesus is this long-awaited king. And we know that Jesus is actually going to be crucified which we'll look at here today, as a would-be king, a rival king, although he's, he's not a rival king to some degree. I mean, he is a rival king, of course, in a lot of ways, to Caesar, but he's not a threat in the way that Caesar would have anticipated uh, Jesus to be a threat. He is a king, but he's a different type of king, and we'll kind of unpack that in a moment. So we'll take a look at Jesus uh, being mocked, we'll take a look at him being shamed, and then ultimately we'll take a look at him being crucified, and next week we'll take a look at um, Jesus being abandoned, by the Father, we'll see Jesus ultimately being buried. On Easter Sunday, we'll see Jesus being resurrected. So again, these are all like little snapshots. I think Mark uh, tells us in this story, he wants us to reflect upon. Today, we'll just take a look at the top three, which is, again, Jesus being mocked, shamed, and then crucified. So if you guys wouldn't mind following along, I'm going to pick it up at verse 16, chapter 15, and uh, just listen to the story. Just really listen to this, because I, I, I think Mark wants us to just pay attention to what's happening here in this story. So I'll do my best to read well, and you guys just listen carefully what he has to say. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him, Jesus, in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and they put his own clothes on him and led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from his country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which is... Translated the place of the skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but they did not take it, or he did not take it. But they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide which should each take. And it was the third hour, or nine in the morning, when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge that was laid up against him read, the king of the Jews. And with him, they crucified two robbers, one on the right and one on the left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying to him, Aha, you 
who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes, they mocked him, one another, saying, saying to one another, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see him and believe. And those who were crucified with him also reviled him. God, we ask you right now that you would, you would reveal yourself to us. God, we could read scripture. We could memorize passages. But God, in and of ourselves, unless you choose to reveal to us who you are, all we have is just sort of an empty shell of a sketch, a picture that's devoid of color and beauty. And so God, we ask you this morning that you would just paint for us a picture, cause us to see the beauty of Jesus. God, that we would be floored and blown away by who he is and what he's done for us, on behalf of us. So we commit this time in your hands. Have your way with our hearts, we pray. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So, I mentioned there's three things I really want to take a look at. I'm just going to jump right in to looking at it. So the first little vignette, first little snapshot we'll focus on is Jesus, the king, being mocked. And what we see here are basically four different ways throughout the passage that Mark wants us to be aware that Jesus himself is being mocked. Now, in each one of these things that we're going to take a look at, from being mocked to being shamed to being crucified, I think the way Mark wants us to read through this and understand something about this is that Jesus has his response. The way that Jesus acts uh, simultaneously to what's happening to him, being mocked, being shamed, being crucified, he responds in a way that's completely unique. Jesus, remember, is not the first person to ever be crucified. And he's definitely not the first person to ever be mocked and shamed. But Jesus is mocked, shamed, and crucified in a way that's radically unique, radically different than really anybody else. And I think Mark wants us to be amazed by how Jesus is mocked, shamed, and crucified. And we'll get to that in a moment. But I want to begin to take a look at these one by one. So the first thing we'll take a look at, first little vignette, snapshot, is that this king, Jesus, was mocked. And what we're going to see are basically four different ways. The first thing we see is that Jesus is going to be mocked by the Roman soldiers. In verses 17 and 20, take a look at that again. It says, and they, that is the battalion of the soldiers, they clothed him in a purple cloak and they twisted a crown of thorns together and put it on him. So these soldiers, these Roman soldiers, now remember, these guys were, a lot of ways, um, the Roman soldiers, they weren't like this, I mean, they were a well-trained elite group of soldiers. But at the same time, a lot of these guys were like street thugs, guys that were unemployable. All right, I mean, these were guys that just couldn't hold down a job as lawyers. So a lot of these guys were illiterate, they couldn't talk, they were brawlers, they were street fighters. These were guys that you wouldn't want to like, if you had a daughter, you're like, you'd be bombed if your daughter's like, I'm dating, you know, Roman guard. Like, that stinks, sweetheart. Like, that's not what I want you to do. Um, Daddy can't even read. Of course, that's, they're all illiterate. And the point of the matter is, these guys were thugs. And they, they were just looking for opportunities to attack and hate. And uh, the, what, what happened here, sort of this culmination, that Jesus is sort of released into their custody they know what Jesus is claiming. They know what Jesus is accused of, that he is a king. Now, again, you've got to put this into perspective. In Rome, throughout Rome, there's only one 
recognized king. That was Caesar. If there were other kings, they were either sanctioned kings, like Herod, meaning they were basically given the right to rule. However, they weren't ultimate kings. They were kings under the authority of the submission of the ultimate king, which would have been Caesar. And the other type of kings that were in Caesar's kingdom, which were sort of kings that were rogue. These were kings that were, they would be hunted down, or these, these were leaders that were basically saying, we don't think Caesar's running the kingdom right. We're going to run it a different way. We're going to sort of enable or enact our own power and authority in particular regions and areas. And yet, at some point, these guys would be arrested and then ultimately destroyed. Jesus is arrested. Jesus is tried. Jesus will be crucified as a would-be Messiah or would-be king. So imagine Jesus in the midst of thugs that are loyal to, you know, to some degree, I mean, they're, they're mercenaries. They are loyal to Caesar, but they're really loyal to just their own power, their own might, maybe even some money. And yet, in Jesus, now they got Jesus in their hands, and they're going to use this as an opportunity to completely mock him, to uh, just destroy him. And this is what's happening. So we're told, first of all, they clothe Jesus in a purple cloak. So I want you to imagine this, to think about this. Even though Mark doesn't necessarily give us all these explicit details, but before they can put on this purple cloak, that means they would have had to have stripped off his former clothing. So I just want you to get this idea, this picture in your mind, that here's Jesus in the custody of these Roman guards. They literally strip him of all of his clothing, and then just to make fun of him, they put purple on him. Purple was uh, typically a color of royalty. It was made from a dye that was costly, and uh, it was uh, very rare, and so the only people that ever were able to afford purple were rich people or kings. And so they put Jesus in this purple robe just to simply mock him. And then we're told that they twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on him. Now, there's no doubt in my mind that the Romans had no clue what they were doing. I think probably what was happening was they were looking for, again, another way to mock him. And typically kings uh, or leaders in uh, Rome or throughout Rome, they would wear like these laurel wreaths over their head. And you guys have all, I'm sure, seen that, you know, like a, a green laurel wreath around their head. Well, to me, as I kind of think about this, the opposite of a laurel wreath uh, would be a crown of thorns. In other words, rather than being green and alive, it would be dead and painful. And this is what they put on Jesus' head. However... I think there is an interesting parallel that even though the Romans may not have had any clue what they were doing, uh, no doubt when Mark was writing this, he for sure would have been thinking about this. Because in the garden, when God originally created all things, and it was rhythmic, and it was good, and it was beautiful, uh, God basically created this place where Adam and Eve were to cultivate the earth, and everything was sort of under their submission. They were to basically cultivate the earth, to fill the earth. However, when Adam and Eve sinned, revolted, rebelled against God, God basically said, the earth, the soil, and everything that you're to cultivate, you're still to cultivate, however, it's not going to be as easy as it was before, it's going to rebel against you, and part of that rebellion is there's going to be thorns. In other words, the result of the curse was thorns. And so, Jesus is given a crown, not a crown of gold, but a crown of thorns. In other words, quite literally, Jesus is wearing bearing the result of the curse upon himself. And in verse 18 it says, and they began to salute him and hail king of the Jews is what they said in verse 19. It says, and they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, 
they basically let him out to crucify him. So the picture is, is these Roman soldiers were mocking Jesus. The second picture, snapshot we have in terms of Jesus being mocked was that he was mocked by random passerbys. In verse 29 we're told, and then those who passed by derided him. That particular Greek word is blasphemed, where we get the English word blasphemed from. They derided him, wagging their heads and saying, aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. Thirdly, we see that the religious leaders also had mocked Jesus. In verse 31 it says, and so they also, and the chief priests and the scribes, which basically was uh, uh, the, the, the majority of the religious leaders that were there basically overseeing the life of the religious system in, throughout Israel. It says that the chief priests and the scribes, they mocked him to one another, saying, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. And then verse 32, the beginning part of that says, let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we might see and believe. So it's interesting, between the passerbys and the religious system, they say kind of the same thing to Jesus. Now, again, probably not so much with the real intention of, hey, we're here to help Jesus, here's our advice. But at the end of the day, these people were stumbled over Jesus. They, they couldn't accept Jesus. They didn't like what Jesus was doing. And here's why. Because of the size of Jesus' claims. Jesus claimed to be the king. But again, like I said last week, that the type of kingdom that Jesus came to represent, the type of king that Jesus came to be, is a radically unique, and I would even say incompatible kingdom of this world. Jesus himself would say this in John as he's talking to Pilate. He says, my kingdom's not of this world. And sometimes we interpret that or we think of that as being Jesus saying, my kingdom is like way out there in space, some planet, some distant, you know, ambiguous, intangible zone out there. That's not what Jesus is saying. He is saying, however, that his kingdom, his way of ruling is radically incompatible with the way that the kingdoms of this world and kings of this world actually rule. That's what he's saying. So in other words, one of the things that we pointed out last week is that the way the kings of this world work, let me, let me pause and say something parenthetical as well. Because immediately when we think of kings of this world, we typically think in terms of a national level. Right? We think of like despots, like maybe a Stalin, or maybe the, you know, the guy in North Korea, or you know, uh, Ahmadinejad, or you know, we think of tyrants or people like that that basically uh, abuse authority at a national level. But let me try best to uh, describe the way nations become nations, if, if I would liken it this way, nations are basically the full-fledged garden of the seed that comes from your own heart. Let me, let me explain. In other words, you and I, in each one of our hearts, we contain that DNA that's somehow spoiled, that's broken, that's defunct, that's not working properly. In other words, each one of us think that we're kings. Every one of us live our lives as if we are a kingdom, or we are a king, and we have our own little kingdom around us. And to be quite frank with you, this is one of the reasons why we oftentimes have a lot of broken relationships with other people. I mean, if you start dissecting why there's a lot of brokenness or dysfunctionality in some of your relationships, what you'll begin to discover oftentimes really come down to kingdom clashes. All right, this becomes really 
really exemplified, especially if you're married. Because some of you are like, I've never understood why my wife and I are always fighting, why my husband and I are always fighting. I'll tell you why. Because both of you think you're kings. Well, she might think she's a queen. But both of you think that you are in charge of your lives, of your zones, and whenever he crosses your kingdom or pushes back on your kingdom or tries to overcome your authority and your sovereignty, you look for ways to slaughter the oppression or slaughter the rivalry. Now, you might not kill them, but you'll say nasty things. Your words will come across slicing, cutting, hurtful. And this is the way we live our lives. In other words, that's like a seed. That's a seed. But if you add to that seed, you know, a sense of bigness, you get nations. Nations are just sort of the full-fledged garden of what's already alive and at work in our own hearts in DNA or seed form. So here's the point that I would make is that when Jesus comes and says, I'm a king, and here's how my kingdom's going to work, what you have on the cross, while he's on the cross, you have the religious leaders, and you also have these passerbys basically saying, we don't believe you, Jesus, and here's why. Because if you really were the king, you'd come down from the cross. You know what they're actually doing? They're basically saying, Jesus, the reason why we have a hard time with you, because you're not living according to our script. Our script says kings live in dignity. Our script says kings take advantage of life and use miracles and powers to save themselves. Where do they get that from? From you and I, because that's how we live our lives. We live to protect ourselves. That's why some of your relationships are broken, by the way. That's why you refuse, for some of you, to open your heart to other people. Because it's painful. You're afraid that if you open your heart up to somebody else, they're going to see something in there. And they might feel, you might feel as if they're going to be ashamed of you. But as long as you close yourself off and shut people out and keep your kingdom on lockdown, you'll never go deep. Your relationships will always be shallow. You will always at some point hit that stage of brokenness. And what we see what happens in our lives is we all have this script by which we want to live our lives according to. We have these ideas in our lives of here's how to live. We protect ourselves. We get down from our crosses. We remove ourselves from moments of pain. We isolate those that are mocking us, those that are shaming us. We take those scenarios and we remove ourselves from those circumstances. What we're doing is we're basically saying we're going to get away from the cross as fast as we can. And so what they're offering to Jesus, they're basically saying, our script says kings remove themselves from suffering. So Jesus, get down from the cross and save yourself. And if you do that, we'll believe in you. Now, obviously, debatable. But the point of the matter is, this is the problem with all of us. The size, the enormity, the bigness of Jesus' claims utterly either offend us because we just it's totally incompatible with the kingdoms of this world, like I said, which are already in seed form in our hearts. Or they set us free. You, you can't remain neutral with Jesus. This troubles us. Because we would, rather, we, would, we would like to remain neutral. We would love to just be able to be like, you know what, I'll admire Jesus. I'll admire certain elements about Jesus. But I don't want to fully give him, surrender to him everything in my life. 
because I want to keep some of that back for myself. The claims of Christ don't, don't allow that. They disallow a sense of ambiguity in where you stand with him. You either have to crucify him because he's a rival king and he's a threat to everything your life stands for. Or you fall on your knees and worship him and you see him as who he is and as he's revealed himself to be. You really don't have neutral ground. There's no neutral territory really at the foot of the cross with Jesus. So we see both the passerbys, we see the religious leaders basically mocking Jesus. And then fourthly, we see these uh, thieves or these revolutionaries. In verse 32, we're told that those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Now, again, some of your translations might say thieves. Some of your translations might say brigands, um, robbers. Really, these guys, uh, a lot of scholars have kind of discovered that really it's not so much that these were thieves, like, you know, going around stealing bread for their family that's at home and they got caught and now they're getting crucified. In other words, that type of a crime doesn't match parallel with crucifixion. A lot of scholars actually believe these guys were more like revolutionaries. And the thievery that they may have gotten charged on, or the reason why there's sort of a similarity in terms of a word that's used there, is because oftentimes the revolutionaries in the first century, in fact, even uh, in AD 70, there was a religious leader that would have been arrested and then taken to Rome, and he was crucified. He was a Jewish guy. And um, oftentimes what these guys would do is they would rob from the privileged and the rich, and they would give to the poor. They're basically like Jewish you know, Robin Hoods, you know? And the point of the matter is, is that obviously these two guys got caught, and they were being crucified as revolutionaries, side by side, alongside with Jesus. Uh, some of your translations actually say, thus fulfilling the scripture that he was numbered with transgressors. And so here's Jesus alongside of these guys, and they also were told in verse 32, and a part of that, that they also reviled Jesus. Now we know in John's account that one of those thieves actually repented and then turned to Jesus, and Jesus said, so you're going to be with me in paradise. But at this particular point, I think what Mark wants us to observe is that literally, not only has Jesus been abandoned by his disciples, but now Jesus is completely being mocked by every single person on and within the storyline. So, the second thing that we begin to see here in the story is not only was Jesus mocked, but we also see Jesus shamed. One thing I want to say before we move on to the next thing is this, is I think the way that Mark wants us to sort of observe this is to notice how Jesus responded. Let me ask you this. When you are mocked, when someone mocks you, when someone makes fun of you, when someone caricatures you, when someone does something behind your back to sort of, uh, to poke fun at you, or you're misrepresented, how do you react? I mean, the reality is, is that all of us, we get very frustrated, and we don't have a lot of tolerance or a lot of patience when someone does that to us. When we're mocked, we freak out. I mean, it's just kind of the typical way by which we oftentimes act. But what Mark, I think, wants us to observe is that King Jesus doesn't do that. He's not fighting back. He's not matching their reviling with reviling. In fact, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, he says, in essence, that if you want to know what my kingdom's like, my kingdom's like this. When you're reviled, don't revile back. And here's Jesus being reviled, literally doing exactly what he told his disciples to do. On the cross, what we see Jesus, while he's being mocked, the picture, the portrayal that Mark wants us to sort of pause 
to take in, to absorb, to learn, to glean from, to be amazed by, is that on the cross, while Jesus is being mocked, it's as if he's completely absorbing it all. He's just taking it in. He's not fighting it. He's not resisting it. He's not counterattacking. He's not plotting his next move to somehow attack on another angle. He's just simply absorbing it. The second thing that we see is that Jesus was shamed. In verse 24, we're told that, and they crucified him, and they divided his garments among them, casting for them lots. It says, to decide that which should, that, sorry, uh, to decide what each should take. In verse 25, and it was the third hour when they crucified him. And so the picture that Mark wants us to kind of pause at next is, here's Jesus, uh, not only originally being mocked, but now Jesus is being stripped of his clothing, and at the foot of the cross, what you have are these Roman soldiers basically playing a game, and the game that they're playing is to kind of decide who's going to get uh, the, the clothing of Jesus. Um, I think it's in John's account, it says that they were actually casting lots, so I say they're playing a the game. They're literally playing a game at the foot of the cross while Jesus is in his deepest, darkest moment of suffering, and what they're doing is beneath the body of Jesus as being crucified, they're trying to determine what to do with his clothes. Now, the image, the picture, that I think Mark wants us to really just consider to think about. And what's happened, I think, over time, throughout history, in the movies more recently that have been made, and the artwork that has been done for the past you know, 2,000 years, oftentimes the pictures that have been put on display of Jesus on the cross in his hour of darkest, greatest shame and pain is that he's typically clothed with some sort of a loincloth around his waist. And we've all seen that. And the reason for that is out of respect. However, that would not be historically accurate. In fact, probably more accurate would be Jesus would be completely naked, completely undressed, with no ability to cover himself. Totally naked. That's the picture that crucifixion paints for us. Now, to take that a little bit further, we've got to understand a little bit of something about nakedness. Throughout the Bible, the original time in which nakedness basically appears is in Genesis chapter 3. Again, we kind of re uh, referred to that earlier, that when Adam and Eve had sinned, and when God originally created them, they were in God's presence. They were in God's relationship, and there was, they were clothed in the relationship with God. In other words, there's a verse that actually says that they were naked and unashamed. I just want you to think about that for a moment. Naked and unashamed. There's a sense that in the midst of pure nakedness, they were totally unashamed by that. And, and, that's, and it's not at all, obviously, because there was some form of perversion. It was because that, there was a purity there. There was a sense of just honesty, uh, a beauty about that. But after they sinned, after they became basically aware of themselves in a sense where they view themselves as sort of makers of their own destiny, kings of their own worlds. Uh, and what happened was they began to become aware of their own nakedness. And the first thing they did is they went out to basically sew for themselves fig leaves. Now we know basically God moves into the story. One of the first things that God does is he provides for them a covering that is better than fig leaves. God provided for them skins of, of an animal. And this was God's way of basically saying, for me to cover your nakedness... Something alive has to die. It's, from the very beginning, God was already setting in motion this, this 
this picture of here's how to cover one's nakedness. So the picture of being naked was oftentimes equated with shame. Adam and Eve ran out of the garden naked and shamed. And yet tried to, for some period of time, cover their nakedness. And to take it even another angle to kind of layer another element on top of this, in a culture that was basically driven by honor. Okay? This was an honor uh, type of a system and a culture. We have honor cultures and systems within our world here today. Not so much in America, definitely like in the Middle East. In fact, it's so bad in some parts of the world uh, that where honor is uppermost. That if you're, for example, maybe some, familiar with some ladies uh, that have been married to a man and they felt dishonored by their wives and in some areas they would actually take acid from a battery and pour it all over the woman's face. Not to kill her. Sometimes the women die, but the intention is not to kill her. It's literally to melt her face, to cause her to be naked so that she would not have an identity anymore. In an honor culture, to have your nakedness revealed is synonymous with identifying your name as being defunct, broken, messed up, dishonored, shamed. So to have someone put on open display naked is another way of basically saying this person is worthless. This name, this person who bore this name is a nobody now. He's worthless in his culture. He shamed all of us. We're ashamed of him. And here he is. So here's Jesus, totally shamed. But here's the reality. His clothes being stripped from off of him and being played part of this game to be divvied up was another way in which basically the gospel writer is saying, here's what happened to Jesus. He was shamed. The reality is, is all of us, we understand to some degree this connection between clothing and honor. I'll give you an example. I mean, this is, if you really want sort of a, a modern type of a connection, all of us, to some degree, maybe you're living in it right now, or maybe at some point you have, or at some point in the future you will, we've all bought into this lie. And the lie basically goes something like this. What you wear defines you. You are the type of clothing you wear. And so we live to dress in certain clothing. We save our money to buy certain types of clothing. We avoid certain types of stores that sell certain types of clothing because we don't want to be associated with that. All right? I mean, and this to me, it actually, I, I was trying to think back in my memory bank as to like how long ago this actually began. Because probably when I was two years old, I, I don't think I cared about what I wore. But I can remember probably when I was like in third grade, I cared about what I wore. I, I can remember back in the day how utterly devastated I was when I came home from school and I'm like, tell my mom, and I'm like, I really want to get a pair of Vans. My mom's like, okay, great, we'll take you out. So I lived down in Huntington Beach. My mom took us to like Huntington Center back then, back in the days, what it was called. And she takes me into like Tom McCann. She's like, we're going to buy you a pair of like knockoff Vans. I'm like, no, not knockoff Vans. I need real Vans. Like I was devastated. I didn't even want to wear them because I thought this is a lame. They didn't even have the same like, like, you know, the imprint on the bottom of the shoes. You know, it was like bands. I was like devastated. I was trying to hide my feet. And I was like shamed because my clothing didn't match what I viewed as being, you know, stylish. But, you know, in some ways, we carry that on even into adulthood. There's certain people we won't even associate because of the way they dress. I mean, if you're honest with yourself, 
you'll just admit that. Isn't it true? If there's certain people we see, if you're someone of an older generation, and you see somebody like all tatted up, you're like, oh my gosh, they must be like, you know, full meth head. Like, probably not the same meth head, but you're like, they must be like smoking marijuana. You know, I mean, the point of the matter is, you know, you're, you're going to be like, I'm not going to go talk to them because they must be on drugs, you know. And, and others, you know, you might be young and all tatted up and you see some guy like wearing, you know, rain spooner, you know, Hawaiian shirt, and, like pants that say Kirkland on the back, you know, like jeans. You're like, I ain't talk to that guy. He reminds me of my grandpa. Like the bottom line is, is that we are defined by oftentimes our clothing. We choose friends. We choose associations and relationships based upon what we wear. Mark wants us to pause and see the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, who is clothed in light. I don't even know what that means. He robes himself, clothes himself, the scripture says, in light, unapproachable. I mean, I think it's sort of a way of basically saying, you want to know what type of clothes Jesus, Jesus wears? They're absolutely beautiful. They will blow your mind stripped of them all and naked. It's Mark's way of saying Jesus not only just lost his clothes, but his dignity and his honor and his name. And all who saw him were ashamed of him. This is the strange juxtaposition that's happening here in the passage of the King of Glory he robes himself of his glory and becomes naked, shamed. Now again, I, I, think, I think Mark intends for us to ask ourselves, like, like, what would you do when you are shamed? When someone shames you, when someone says something to you, you know, when someone does something to you that's, that's that is just, it's a, it's a shame to you. You feel as if your name was drugged through the mud or you were dishonored or someone said something to you or spoke to you in a tone of voice that kind of humiliated you in front of people. Look, th- this is where our kingdom anger comes in. I mean, I know what happens to me. I know what happens in my heart. And sometimes it comes out of my heart through my mouth and through my actions. And it's not pretty. It's absolutely repulsive. It's ugly. It hurts my wife. It hurts my kids. It hurts people that I know. It's not pretty. It's destructive. And you know, I do the same thing. But here's Jesus, shamed, stripped of his glory, derobed, publicly dishonored. And if anything, we're told Jesus is praying. One of his prayers his Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. This is part of the storyline that Mark wants us to pause and just soak it in. He's absorbing it. He's taking it in. He's not resisting it. He's not fighting it. He's not pushing back. And what's in, what's, let's go on and keep moving on to the last thing. Is that we see the third thing is that this king was crucified. Verse 20, we're told, and they led him off to crucify him. While Jesus is on the path to being crucified, we're told in verse 21 that they had compelled this passerby, his name is Simon of Cyrene. Um, oftentimes the way that the victim would carry the cross 
Um, sometimes we have this picture of them carrying this entire cross, you know, cross beam and vertical and horizontal beam, carrying it through the streets. And um, most historians actually believe that that's not necessarily how it happened. I mean, in some cases, maybe that's how it happened. But most cases, they would carry sort of the, the large horizontal beam, and the large vertical beam would have already been there at the site where they would be executed. And so whatever the case is, Jesus, what we see here, couldn't even carry his cross. He was weak. We see this picture of the king of glory literally so weak and so distraught that he falls and they basically summon another guy to carry it. And we're told in a storyline, it's just some guy named Simon of Cyrene, says that he is the father of Alexander and Rufus to carry the cross. Now, just a real quick parenthetical statement. This is kind of one of the ways, in fact, I'll just say that why we can believe the scripture. I'll tell you why. If you're writing a story, kind of making up sort of a new religion, let's just say, and you're like, I'm going to call this new religion Christianity. You're going to be a story about this guy named Jesus and died on a cross for our sins and all these other things. You, you'll have a point that you're trying to make. But there's, you, if you're just making this whole thing up, if it's a myth, if it's a story, you're not going to give a lot of just like insignificant details. And I'll, and I'll tell you what, Simon of Cyrene is a totally insignificant detail. It does not play in the story. In other words, it's total subplot. In other words, I'll even go so far as to say all it is, it's a detail that actually happened. I think it's a little handle, if you would. Holy Spirit inspired to just simply say, this is not a myth, because this actually happened. There's a guy named Simon of Cyrene that he happened to be there. He saw Jesus drop the cross. The Roman guards called him. And by the way, uh, he happens to be the father of Rufus and Alexander. Now, we have no idea who these guys are. However, there is a guy named, by the name of Rufus that actually comes up in the uh, book of uh, Romans. And so some scholars have suggested that um, this guy, uh, as, as, you know, so just so you know, when they would take these scriptures like this, uh, like, for example, the Gospel of Mark, they would send them to the churches in these little scrolls, and they would read them. In large gatherings, small gatherings, they would sit around, and they would read these scriptures. And so imagine reading this, in the little setting, in the Bible study, in the church, wherever it is, whatever it looked like, where Rufus and Alexander happen to be. And as they're reading this, they're like, you know, and this guy, Simon, carried the cross. He's the father of Rufus. And everybody looks at Rufus and they're like, that's your dad? Your dad carried the cross? Yeah, that was my dad. Let me tell you about that. In other words, it's just a, it's just a detail that actually happened. Verifying, in other words, that this is not just a made-up story. You can actually believe the historicity of this and trust in it. But ultimately what happens is we see in verses 22 and 20, 25 and 27, it says that it was 9 a.m. when they crucified him. Verse 27 says, and when they had crucified him, they crucified him between two robbers, one on the right and one on the left. And so here's the picture of Jesus crucified. Now, the, the, the reality of crucifixion is that crucifixion is not and was not simply designed as a means of just simply executing victims or prisoners. The whole point of crucifixion it, from this very beginning was designed to maximize the life of that individual. In other words, it was intended to keep the person alive for as long as they could. For them to absorb and drink in the torture and the pain for as long as they could. And oftentimes what would typically happen is that they would leave the bodies on the crosses overnight and sometimes we have these pictures of the crosses being really high up most of the times they actually believe that the crosses were probably you know just eye level and within uh range that oftentimes animals would come you know 
coyotes and other types of animals would come in, scavenger dogs would come in and actually start eating the bodies alive while they're hanging on the cross in the middle of the night after all the passers-bys would have already gone home. But with Jesus, it's a unique case because it's on the eve of Passover that they didn't allow that to happen. The Jews did not want bodies on the cross outside of their city during the time of Passover. So we're told that Jesus, we'll look at this more next week, he died. But there, the whole point of crucifixion was meant to shame, to utterly strip of all dignity the name and the power and the strength of the individual that has violated Rome. So here's Jesus literally on the cross, totally weakened, totally devoid of any strength, totally shamed, totally mocked, completely naked, with no ability to even cover himself. It was totally common for people to walk by to throw rocks at him, to make fun at their body parts, to laugh at them, to spit on them. And it was very common. We know this because of early church historians. Uh, early historians, I should say, in that period had written about enough crucifixions because it was a very common practice throughout Rome. And that oftentimes it's very common when someone was being crucified, their way of retaliation, because their hands are attached to a cross and because their feet are not able to be moved around and because they're utterly naked and people are coming by spitting on them, throwing on them, they had no other way to basically retaliate except to say bad names back at the people, sometimes to spit on them, oftentimes to even urinate on them. It's very common. But here's Jesus doing none of that. If you or I, again, were mocked, shamed, defamed, or in some way, shape, or form, tortured in such a way, that we still had some ounce a way of retaliation, what would we do? The answer, obviously, for all of us is that we would retaliate. But this is the picture that we don't see with Jesus. Jesus is not doing any of this. He's not fighting back. He's not resisting. He's not reviling those who reviled him. He's not spitting. He's not shouting curses. He's not even saying, you guys have something coming because God's going to judge you on judgment day. I mean, it's amazing to me how oftentimes Christians can call down curses from heaven, from God, to their enemies for far lesser things, but not Jesus. Again, the picture of Jesus is one of which he's totally absorbing every last bit of it. And we're not going to get into it today, but the reality is the real suffering has not even begun for Jesus yet. Because next week we'll see Jesus abandoned. By the Father. But all of this up until this point, what we see is Jesus literally just absorbing it all. And the question that we really have to ask is why? What does all this mean? Because if we're really honest with ourselves, every single one of us, if you or I were to be in that place of being mocked or shamed or in a place where it was uncomfortable or painful, you know, we get a little bit kind of wiggly. I, I, I see this sometimes even talking with people. There's a lot of times I can sit down and talk with people about life. And I start asking them questions about their life. And they get a little bit like closed and protected. And like, mm, I don't really want to go there. Now, they're not necessarily going to say that. But sometimes the agitation. Because sometimes they've come from a past where it's a lot of pain. A lot of hardship. A lot of challenges. A lot of difficulties. And understandably so. But with Jesus, 
What we have of him is a picture totally open, totally absorbing every last ounce of shame, defilement, brokenness, pain, crucifixion to its full. Why? There's three things that we'll take a look at in a moment in summary. But when John the Baptist, who was Jesus' cousin, came on the scene, he was sort of a precursor to Jesus' ministry. When Jesus came out and sort of began his public ministry, John kind of had these prophetic words. And when Jesus was coming, he saw Jesus and he says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And that phrase, behold, isn't just like, everybody look at Jesus and admire him. Let's welcome him, give him a clap. It's not the idea. The idea is everybody stop what you're doing and focus on Jesus and behold him. Look at him. Study him. Observe him. Be in awe of him. Watch him. Pay attention to him because his life is a life of absolute, total, ultimate significance. And in the significance of his life, your life will become significant. Behold the Lamb of God. And there's three things I want to finish with that I think if we behold the Lamb of God that we can take away from this. The first thing is that we can behold is that if we see what Jesus has done, what we see is that there was a radical debt that was paid or carried. Throughout Jesus' life, he described this event that was about to happen. And he says that the Son of Man will be betrayed and the Son of Man will die to ransom many. In other words, a price will be paid. A debt will be paid. Something will be carried. One of my favorite shows I like to watch is a show on Netflix. and might be on Hulu or whatever too, but um, it's called Addicted. It's a great show. It's, it's all about uh, just addicts, drug addicts in particular. And what's really unique and interesting about this show is it takes you sort of this, through this journey of people who are really intensely just addicted on a really profound level to drugs, and they, they can't get themselves free. And part of that is some of them, some of the ones that I've watched, they actually uh, live at home. One of them in particular actually still lived at home. And the relationship with his mom was just as dysfunctional. Like his mom was not stepping in, not doing anything. And at some point throughout the program, there comes into the whole entire show um, an interventionist. And this interventionist comes in, basically says, all right, I'm here, I really care about you, and I'm not just caring about you in words, but I care about you in deed, here's what we're going to do. I'm going to take you, and we are gonna, we're going to go away, we're going to go into this home, it's going to be tough, it's going to be hard, you're going to feel like you want to leave and want to run, but I'm here for you the entire step of the way. And what's interesting in the shows that I've watched is that oftentimes this interventionist gets this really bad brunt of everybody. I mean... Sometimes the family members turn against the intervention and start cussing them out. Sometimes the person, the, the, the guy that's the drug addict, will actually look at them and start yelling at them and sometimes even become physically violent with them. So here's what's happening. This interventionist is determined to help this person. In order for them to help them, there's a price that they've got to pay. In other words, they're going to carry some of the garbage some of the pain, some of the hurt, some of the shame, some of the, some of the brokenness that this person that they're helping is going to carry. Let me give you another analogy. It's like if you saw somebody that was filthy, filthy, dirty, like physically filthy, dirty, mud caked all over their body, and you're like, I want to help them get clean. I will help them get clean. I will wash them. And if you went to that person in, in trying to help them get clean, what will happen is some of that filth and dirt and grime will get on you. In other words, 
you will carry some of that grime. For you to help that person who is dirty and filthy become clean, you will at some point in that become filthy and dirty. So part of the whole process for that person to become clean, you will then in turn make yourself become filthy and dirty in order to get them clean. But on a cosmic scale, this is exactly what Jesus does. For him to take people like you and I that are broken, that are literally in shame, in the midst of shame. We live our lives oftentimes shamefully. We do things. We try to mark out for ourselves an identity by the clothes we wear, by the jobs we have, by the friends we hang out with, by the type of cars we drive, by what type of job we have. If you're in ministry, it's horrible. It's oftentimes how big your church is, how many people are listening to you, how many people follow you. It's horrible. We try to figure out all sorts of ways by which we can mark out our identity. All we're simply doing is we're trying to find new fig leaves to cover our nakedness and our shame. But if we are to become new people, not marked by shame, not, not marked by our own brokenness, then somebody needs to come in and intervene. Somebody needs to come in and get dirty alongside of us and bear our shame, bear our sin, bear our guilt, bear our anonymity. Become vulnerable like you and I are vulnerable. And this is the picture we see with Jesus, that he bore our shame. He bore our sin. He was soiled so that you and I who are soiled can be clean. This is the picture of what we see with Jesus. This is what's absolutely beautiful about him. So what we see, first of all, that we can learn from beholding the Lamb of God is that we can see that this Jesus paid a price, paid a debt, carried the bill on a cosmic level. Because it wasn't just simply broken relationships on a horizontal level. It's that we have ultimately broken relationships with God. Like I said earlier, we all see ourselves as little individual kings, have our own little individual kingdoms, and when some big God way out there comes in and begins to say, no, here's how the king lives, we revolt against that. We say, no, no, if you're really the king, here's how kings really live. And Jesus says, you don't understand my kingdom. You need to be saved. You need to be set free. You need to be cleansed. And to do that, you need someone to carry your sin, carry your shame, carry your guilt. And that's what we see, the first thing. The second thing that we see in beholding the Lamb is that suffering has a way of being redeemed. In this world, all of us are going to suffer. But the reality is most of us don't know what to do with our suffering. I mean, Buddhism might... I find Buddhism actually fascinating, to be honest with you. I've, I've studied a lot. I've been fascinated by it. And Buddhism actually is built on a response to suffering. But still really never gets to the deepest answer of it. But what Christianity does is it says, yes, there is suffering. But suffering is not ultimate. God is ultimate. And God is able to take the most grimmest form of suffering and turn it into, the, and turn it into something that's most beautiful to help and benefit and bless other people's lives. And on the cross, what we see is Jesus in the most horrific scenario, crushed and bruised, suffering in your place, 
for you, bearing your sin upon himself to set you free. We have a place now in Christianity to know what to do with suffering. Suffering can be redeemed. The final thing that we see, if we behold the Lamb of God, is that love ultimately was put on open display. Look, at the end of the day, we all know this instinctively. Just simply saying I love you is worthless. I mean, it has, let me not say that. It has some value, all right? That's why, you know, when someone says, I love you, you're like, oh, really? You know, like, we still kind of get a little bit, like, Twitter painted over that. We're like, oh, that's really nice. I'm loved. But the reality is when, when, if somebody says, I love you, and yet they don't follow through with something, or they actually do something to strike and hurt and causes pain, then we become cynical, right? True love is not just simply words, it's action. God on the cross is not just simply saying I love you. He's demonstrating that he loves us. Because remember what I asked earlier? If you are shamed, when you are mocked, and when you go through intense suffering, what do you do? We check out, or we bail out, or we resist. We fight. We fight back. We strike back. But what we see with Jesus is completely him absorbing it. Jesus had every power, every ability to check out. He literally could have snapped his fingers and like gone to another quasar in some other part of the cosmos. He could have even said earlier, I could call for a legion of angels to strike against every oppressor. He could have retaliated. He could have whipped out, you know, a, 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 some sort of a, uh, a play out of, you know, Caesar's playbook. But he doesn't. He doesn't fight back. He doesn't retaliate. He doesn't remove himself. He absorbs. Why? Because what we see in Jesus is him carrying your shame, your pain, your nakedness, so that he can remove your anonymity and give you a name, so that he can remove your defilement and cleanse you. So that he can remove your sense of brokenness and give you in its place shalom. A God that does that for you is a God that you can trust with everything. This is what the gospel is. The good news is that through Jesus doing this for us, he brings us into this community where now we become a community of wounded healers. We are once broken. Yet he's healed us, he's cleansed us, he's washed us. Now we've become part of his purposes to heal other people. So in other words, the suffering that you've gone through in your life, it's not displaced, it has a place. God can redeem it, he can use it if you allow him. But as long as we continue to exercise our own little autonomous ways and say, if you're really the Christ, and you would come down from the cross, because that's what I would do, I'd bail then we would miss out on the real big purposes that he has for our lives and the joy that goes along with it because we're told over and over and over again throughout the scriptures that in his presence is fullness of joy. To be with Jesus, even if being with Jesus means being with him through a season of intense suffering. That's where the redemption is found. That's where we find our name. That's where we get our identity is from him clothing us. Remember I said at the beginning, God's way of clothing Adam and Eve was by taking something alive, 
killing it, and then using that as the means of covering. That's the picture that we see with Jesus. Jesus was crushed so that you and I who are crushed can be made whole. I want to welcome you into, invite you into that, to worship him. We're going to close in song and partake of communion. The communion speaks to us of broken bread, which by the way, total side note, it's gluten-free now. That's all I'm ever going to say about that. I'm not even going to explain it. Let's get focused. It reminds us of what Jesus has done for us on the cross. It reminds us of what he's done for us on the cross, that he was broken so that you and I can be made whole. So I want to invite you to worship him. Let's all stand. I want to pray over you guys. We have some rugs in the front for you to just get on your knees before the Lord. Uh, we have some people over here that really want to pray with you guys. So whatever it is that you're going through, I mean, I, I know honestly sometimes it's hard to like admit or to go have someone out, ask them to have them pray for you. You never met them before. But again, this is part of that sense of trust. Like even though maybe somebody's been hurt or wounded, learning to trust again because trust is really the basis of what Christianity is all about. It begins by trusting a God who truly loves you, who's demonstrated his love, not just by word, but by action. So I want to pray. We have communion in the back. Prayer over there, some rugs in the front. Let's sing. Let's give him thanks. God, I just thank you for your great love that you've demonstrated to us, that we have a God that doesn't just condemn us, even though we have, in a lot of ways, just condemned you, banished you. Go have someone ask them to have them pray for you. You never met them before. But again, this is part of that sense of trust. Like, even though maybe somebody's been hurt or wounded, learning to trust again. Because trust is really the basis of what Christianity is all about. It begins by trusting a God who truly loves you, who's demonstrated his love. Not just by word, but by action. So I want to pray. We have communion. Go have someone ask them to have them pray for you. You never met them before. But again, this is part of that sense of trust. Like, even though maybe somebody's been hurt or wounded, learning to trust again. Because trust is really the basis of what Christianity is all about. It begins by trusting a God who truly loves you, who's demonstrated his love, not just by word, but by action. So I want to pray. We have communion. Go have someone ask them to have them pray for you. You never met them before. But again, this is part of that sense of trust. Like, even though maybe somebody's been hurt or wounded, learning to trust again, because trust is really the basis of what Christianity is all about. It begins by trusting a God who truly loves you, who's demonstrated his love, not just by word, but by action. So I want to pray. We have communion.